The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor by Spotify. That's anchor.fm. Hi folks, this is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. I'm here to tell you tonight about Anchor. Anchor is one of the best podcast distribution apps out there. Uh, They offer various ways to create, distribute, and monetize your podcast all for free, and they have some of the best built-in uploading, recording, and editing tools available in the industry. From start to finish, they can help you to set up your podcast. So if you are interested in starting a podcast, check out anchor.fm. Or if you are already a podcaster and you're looking for distribution solutions for your podcast, check out anchor.fm. Come with me.
Listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight we're going to discuss archetypes, the hero and the shadow. And in order to do so, we're going to be looking into the works of Carl Jung. We're going to look in a book called Man and His Symbols. And uh, we're going to be reading a portion here uh, that is actually titled Ancient Myths and Modern Man The Eternal Symbols. And I always like to tell people, never overlook the importance of mythology. This is a crucial thing to understand in the modern era. And it's something that's been largely lost by uh, society at large. We've lost our connection with mythology. We've lost our connection with the primary archetypes associated with them. But although it looks like we've actually lost that connection... The connection itself is still there. We just don't recognize it. And it's important to recognize these archetypes for what they are. Because in so doing, that's how we grow on a spiritual level, as well as on just a foundational psychological level. And Jung, uh, although he approaches this from a more, uh, what you would call, scientific psychological viewpoint, he was also a trained alchemist. He understood concepts of alchemy, and he tied those over into the modern study of psychology and connected them in many, many crucial ways. Uh, so the concepts underlying what has been conceived in the modern era as psychology, these are old, old, old ideas, right? Uh, human behavior has been understood uh, by many people in the earliest civilizations for a long time. Uh, philosophers, alchemists, people like that, who study the human condition. And ancient man was more acquainted with the natural world and the workings and foundations of the world and the archetypes than we are today. So it's important that we look at these intrinsic archetypes and connect them to everyday life today. And I think Jung does a good job connecting some dots for us and gives us a, a kind of a, a good road to travel here in looking at these different concepts, right? So let's get into the reading here, the eternal symbols. The ancient history of man is being meaningfully rediscovered today in the symbolic images and myths that have survived ancient man. As archaeologists dig deep into the past, it is less the events of historical time that we learn to treasure than the statues, designs, temples, and languages that tell of old beliefs. Other symbols are revealed to us by the philologists and religious historians, which can translate these beliefs into intelligible modern concepts. These, in turn, are brought to life by cultural anthropologists. They can show that the same symbolic patterns can be found in the rituals or myths of small tribal societies still existing unchanged for centuries on the outskirts of civilization. All such researches have done much to correct the one-sided attitude of those modern men who maintain that such symbols belong to peoples of antiquity or to backward modern tribes and are therefore irrelevant to the complexities of modern life. 
In London or New York, we may dismiss the fertility rites of Neolithic man as archaic superstition. If anyone claims to have seen a vision or heard voices, he is not treated as a saint or as an oracle. It is said he is mentally disturbed. We read the myths of the ancient Greeks or the folk stories of American Indians, but we fail to see any connection between them and our attitudes to the heroes or dramatic events of today. Yet, the connections are there, and the symbols that represent them have not lost their relevance for mankind. And I'm going to pause for a moment right there, folks. Uh, This is true, okay? The connections are there. The symbols are still represented in the modern era. We don't always recognize the archetype behind them, but uh, some of the symbols have been updated for the times, for our modern sensibilities, and we still see them, right? They still have an in the undeniable effect on the human mind, on human consciousness. The symbols are there. They have this inherent archetypal meaning behind them that your brain recognizes. Well, your mind, I should say. I should make that distinction. Uh, brain and mind, uh, the concepts are two different things. And sometimes we use those words interchangeably, and we probably shouldn't. Uh, but the mind recognizes the archetype and can act upon it, and it will affect your mind on a an unconscious level which manifests subconsciously and can alter your conscious behavior in certain ways and we'll see as we go along here uh, some of the concepts that go along with that but uh, let's continue reading here one of the main contributions of our time to the understanding and revaluing of such eternal symbols has been made by dr young's school of analytical psychology It has helped to break down the arbitrary distinction between primitive man, to whom symbols seem a natural part of everyday life, and modern man, for whom symbols are apparently meaningless and irrelevant. As Dr. Young has pointed out earlier in this book, the human mind has its own history, and the psyche retains traces left from previous stages of its development. More than this, the contents of the unconscious exert a formative influence on the psyche. Consciously, we may ignore them, but unconsciously, we respond to them and to the symbolic forms, including dreams, in which they express themselves. That's why I've been putting a lot of emphasis lately on dreams. I've been doing a lot of shows studying dreams. Dreams are one of the primary connection points we have back to ancient mythological archetypes. See, and this is something that's inherent in the the human unconscious, right? So they will manifest in the form of a dream when you're not in a a conscious state, uh, so to say here, a waking state. Uh, So we see that in the uh, subconscious state or the altered conscious state of dreaming. So we can sometimes garner some value from dreams, and we could recognize some of the mythological archetypes present in dreams. And they may be a little bit changed around from what a classical mythological archetype would look like, like what you would view as, say, ancient Greek mythology or something like that. But rest assured, the archetype's still the same, whether it has this, uh, you know, the look or presence of whatever type of mythology there. Uh, Usually our our minds will adapt them for our modern situations, but there are some symbols that are universal in meaning and we'll recognize them on an archetypal level. And this is why it's important to uh, spend a little time looking at dreams as a concept as well. But uh, dreams and mythology 
are, you know, very heavily connected here. So this is something that Jung pointed out. Let's read on. The individual may feel that his dreams are spontaneous and disconnected. But over a long period of time, the analyst can observe a series of dream images and note that they have a meaningful pattern. And by understanding this, his patient may eventually acquire a new attitude to life. Some of the symbols in such dreams derive from what Dr. Young has called the collective unconscious. That is, the part of the psyche that retains and transmits the common psychological inheritance of mankind. These symbols are so ancient and unfamiliar to modern man that he cannot directly understand or assimilate them. It is here that the analyst can help. Possibly, the patient must be freed from the encumbrance of symbols that have grown stale and inappropriate. Or, possibly, he must be assisted to discover the abiding value of an old symbol that, far from being dead, is seeking to be reborn in modern form. Before the analyst can effectively explore the meaning of symbols with a patient, he must himself acquire a wider knowledge of their origins and significance. For the analogies between ancient myths and the stories that appear in the dreams of modern patients are neither trivial nor accidental. They exist because the unconscious mind of modern man preserves the symbol-making capacity that once found expression in the beliefs and rituals of the primitive. And that capacity still plays a role of vital psychic importance. In more ways than we realize, we are dependent on the messages that are carried by such symbols, and both our attitudes and our behavior are profoundly influenced by them. going to pause for a moment there, folks profoundly influenced by them. That's right, symbols, our minds and behaviors are profoundly influenced by them. So when you see corporate logos out there that use like, uh, say, Nike, uses the swoosh, the Saturn symbol, know that uh, your unconscious mind, the unconscious mind or the collective unconscious will recognize this symbol, the archetypal value of it, and the associations therefore made and will make those associations, and it will affect your conscious behavior on some level, whether you realize it or not. Uh, so this, this goes across the board for so many different things, right? Uh, and I just use the example of corporate logos because that's something we're all kind of familiar with at this point in the modern Western world. We see them all over the place, and many of them have origins that uh, might be spurious to some of us, but you're unconscious mind will recognize it nonetheless because these are ideas that transcend time and culture. These symbols have become so ingrained in the human psyche from ancient times that uh, the archetype they represent is well known. So that, that's the important thing to keep in mind here. But let's read on. <clears throat> in wartime, for instance, one finds increased interest in the works of Homer, Shakespeare, and Tolstoy. And we read with a new understanding those passages that give war its enduring or archetypal meaning. They evoke a response from us that is much more profound than it could be from someone who has never known the intense emotional experience of war. The battles of the plains of Troy were utterly unlike the fighting at Agincourt or Borodino, yet the great writers are able to transcend the differences of time and place and to express themes that are universal. We respond because these themes are fundamentally symbolic. 
A more striking example should be familiar to anyone who has grown up in a Christian society. At Christmas, we may express our inner feeling for the mythological birth of a semi-divine child, even though we may not believe in the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ or have any kind of conscious religious faith. Unknowingly, we have fallen in with the symbolism of rebirth. This is a relic of an immensely older solstice festival, which carries the hope that the fading winter landscape of the northern hemisphere will be renewed. For all our sophistication, we find satisfaction in this symbolic festival just as we join with our children at Easter in the pleasant ritual of Easter eggs and Easter rabbits. But do we understand what we do or see the connection between the story of Christ's birth, death, and resurrection and the folk symbolism of Easter? Usually, we do not even care to consider such things intellectually, yet they complement each other. Christ's crucifixion on Good Friday seems at first sight to belong to some to the same pattern of fertility excuse me to the same pattern of fertility symbolism that one finds in the rituals of such other saviors as Osiris, Tammuz, and Orvius. They too were of divine or semi-divine birth. They flourished, were killed, and were reborn. They belonged, in fact, to cyclic religions in which the death and rebirth of the god-king was an eternally recurring myth. But the resurrection of Christ on Easter Sunday is much less satisfying from a ritual point of view than is the symbolism of the cycle of the cyclic religions. For Christ ascends to sit at the right hand of God the Father. His resurrection occurs once and for all. And I'm going to pause for a moment there. Pay attention closely here, folks, because this is probably the crux of the matter as far as it pertains to Christianity, how it differs from some of these other older mythologies, right? So let's pay attention here. It is this finality of the Christian concept of the resurrection, the Christian idea of the last judgment has a similar closed theme, that distinguishes Christianity from other God-King myths. It happened once, and the ritual merely commemorates it. But this sense of finality is probably one reason why early Christians, still influenced by pre-Christian traditions, felt that Christianity needed to be supplemented by some elements of an older fertility ritual. They needed the recurring promise of rebirth, and that is what symbolized is symbolized by the egg and the rabbit of Easter. I, I'm going to pause for a moment again there, folks. So this is important, okay? This is important. This is why in modern culture we celebrate Christmas and Easter here in the Western world. Uh, although largely society has become more secular than Christian here in the U.S. And uh, we still celebrate these things and we celebrate these things in the guise of older traditions that have come forward from uh, what they would call pagan systems, right? The Yuletide, uh, that's the the whole, you know, winter solstice idea. All of this has been brought forward, and the traditions thereof have been brought forward and adopted into Christianity. And the same thing goes for Easter. The older fertility rites, the the spring, the spring equinox, uh, the kind of ideas associated with that have been adopted along with that. So there's a distinction to be made here, and the early Christians probably felt they needed to bring these traditions forward just to kind of keep the the traditions flowing so that they could better understand 
the death and rebirth cycle, right? That things are cyclical because uh, when Christ died on the cross and was resurrected, that was for once and for all, right? This wasn't a repeating uh, God-King myth like the others. This was settled, right? This is what made it different. Uh, the other ones went through these cyclical processes where it was associated one from the other uh, between the different cultures. Like, uh, largely the Romans adopted many of the Greek myths and just gave them different names, right? So it's the same kind of thing that went on with this. So they understood, okay, this was all representative of the same thing. Well, the advent of Christ was something different and was acknowledged as something different, something more final. But uh, they still wanted to celebrate the idea of the cyclical nature of things, death and rebirth. So they held up these older symbols to keep doing that because, see, the archetype was already in their minds. So they used this in celebrating those holidays. So the archetype is there. So regardless of what your religious views or philosophical views on these things are, uh, just understand there was a distinction being made between Christianity and some of the other what they called myths, the older myths, right? The other uh, religious uh, religious uh, pan pantheons, so to say. Uh, so the distinction was made there by Jung and understood, but uh, the principles of the celebration of the different ideas, the ideas of death and rebirth, all these things were archetypal and were foundational and foundationally entrenched in the human psyche and understood by these symbols and recognized by these symbols. So they still wanted to carry these symbols forward to represent that. So that's kind of what had happened here. But let's, let's read on. I have taken two quite different examples to show how modern man continues to respond to profound psychic influences of a kind that, consciously, he dismisses as little more than the folktales of superstitious and uneducated peoples. But it is necessary to go much further than this. The more closely one looks at the history of symbolism and at the role that symbolism that symbols have played in the life of many different cultures, the more one understands that there is also a, a re-creative meaning in the, these symbols. Some symbols relate to childhood and the transition to adolescence, others to maturity, and others again to the experience of old age when man is preparing for his inevitable death. Dr. Young has described how the dreams of a girl of eight contained the symbols one normally associates with old age. Her dreams presented aspects of initiation into life as belonging to the same archetypal pattern as initiation into death. This progression of symbolic ideas may take place, therefore, within the unconscious mind of modern man, just as it took place in the rituals of ancient societies. This crucial link between archaic or primitive myths and the symbols produced by the unconscious is of immense practical importance to the analyst. It enables him to identify and to interpret these symbols in a context that gives them historical perspective as well as psychological meaning. I shall now take some of the more important myths of antiquity and show how and to what purpose they are analogous to the symbolic material that we encounter in our dreams. What we see is that uh, these symbols and the archetypes they represent have been brought forward through mankind from time immemorial. They represent different things 
and different stages of human progress, right? And uh, what Jung points out is some of them uh, would correlate to the experience of childhood and then young adulthood and then older adulthood and then the process of as we're old and we're preparing for death, right? So we have these four different phases. So keep that in mind as we go forward here. And then we're going to get to the crux of the matter here. Heroes and hero makers. So let's read on. The myth of the hero is the most common and the best-known myth in the world. We find it in the classical mythology of Greece and Rome in the Middle Ages, in the Far East, and among contemporary primitive tribes. It also appears in our dreams. It has an obvious dramatic appeal and a less obvious but nonetheless profound psychological importance. These hero myths vary enormously in detail, but the more closely one examines them, the more one sees that structurally they are very similar. They have, that is to say, a universal pattern, even though they were developed by groups or individuals without any direct cultural contact with each other, by, for instance, tribes of Africans or North American Indians or the Greeks or the Incas of Peru. Over and over again, one hears a tale describing a hero's miraculous but humble birth, his early proof of superhuman strength, his rapid rise to prominence of pa or power, his triumphant struggle with the forces of evil, his fallibility to the sin of pride or hubris, and his fall through the betrayal of or a heroic sacrifice that ends in his death. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. Joseph Campbell did a very excellent job in quantifying the hero's journey and he outlined many of the facets thereof and these are all classical archetypal things that we all resonate with uh, and once again you'll notice i use the term that uh, joseph campbell quantified these things in the hero's journey and that's one of the important points to a lot of this stuff uh, it's the quantification, the, the measurement of things. That's how you can control things, right? It makes things easier to control. If you can count them, if you can quantify them in some way, measure them, then you can find a, a way to control them. And that's what's been done even with things like archetypes, mythology, right? And that's a perfect example of this. We're all pretty much, if you listen to this show, you're probably very familiar with the idea of the hero's journey. If you're not sure what that is, I would invite you to go watch the very first Star Wars movie, because it's outlined almost verbatim in that story. And then go pick up one of Joseph Campbell's books, uh, particularly The Hero with a Thousand Faces. It's the same story told over and over and over again, and just in, with different uh, facades on the front of it, that's all. But Star Wars is a modern-day mythology, right? This is, is the whole idea. You see how these things, they may kind of change shape a little bit through time, but they all represent the same core idea. It's the same story over and over again. Now, let's get back to the reading because there's still quite a bit to cover here. I shall later explain in more detail why I believe that this pattern has psychological meaning both for the individual who is endeavoring to discover and assert his personality and for a whole society which has an equal need to establish its collective identity. But another important characteristic of the hero myth provides a clue. In many of these stories, 
The early weakness of the hero is balanced by the appearance of a strong tutelary figure, or guardian, who enables him to perform the superhuman tasks that he cannot accomplish unaided. Among the Greek heroes, Theseus had Poseidon, god of the sea, and his deity, Perseus, had Athena. Achilles had Chiron, the wise centaur, as his tutor. These godlike figures are, in fact, symbolic representations of the whole psyche. The larger and more comprehensive identity that supplies the strength that the personal ego lacks. Gonna pause for a moment there, folks. And if you're not familiar with those myths, this would be Obi-Wan Kenobi to Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. You see, it's the same thing. It's got the same formula, same story told all through time. Just the, the faces might look a little different, that's all. But let's read on. Their special role suggests that the essential function of the heroic myth is the development of the individual's ego consciousness, his awareness of his own strengths and weaknesses, in a manner that will equip him for the arduous tasks with which life confronts him. Once the individual has passed his initial test and can enter the mature phase of life, the hero myth loses its relevance. The hero's symbolic death becomes, as it were, the achievement of that maturity. I have so far been referring to the complete hero myth, in which the whole cycle from birth to death is elaborately described, but it is essential to recognize that at each of the stages in this cycle, there are special forms of the hero story that apply to the particular point reached by the individual in the development of his ego consciousness, and to the specific problem confronting him at a given moment. That is to say, the image of the hero evolves in a manner that reflects each stage of the evolution of the human personality. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. Notice very carefully here what language he's using to describe these things. And I'm talking about Jung. This is Carl Jung. Uh, notice he says, uh, the image of the hero evolves in a manner that reflects each stage of the evolution of human personality. These are all old mystery school ideas brought forward. Alchemical thought, right? These are all old alchemical ideas that he's bringing forward. So these words he's using are in and of themselves a type of archetype when we think about that. So image. The idea of the image is hugely important, and we might touch upon that a little bit later in this writing, if I'm not mistaken. But... Uh, we have the image here being hugely important, and the idea of evolution, and evolution is not the Darwinian version of it. That's nonsensical. That is a perversion of the older teachings. There's intelligence behind it. It's intelligently guided. It didn't come about by random chance. Let's put it that way. So the idea of Darwinian evolution is a perversion of older ideas and is nonsensical on the face of it because it's never something that's ever been observed. Can't be repeated. <laughs> and certainly, uh, it doesn't really stand up to common sense, does it? But uh, let's, let's put that point aside. I don't want to get on a side trail there about that. Uh, let's get back to our reading. 
This concept can be more easily understood if I present it with what amounts to a diagram. I take this example from the obscure North American tribe of Winnebago Indians because it sets out quite clearly four distinct stages in the evolution of the hero. In these stories, which Dr. Paul Radin published in 1948 under the title Hero Cycles of the Winnebago, we can see the definite progression from the most primitive to the most sophisticated concept of the hero. This progression is characteristic of other hero cycles. Though the symbolic figures in them naturally have different names, their roles are similar, and we shall understand them better once we have grasped the point made by the example. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. The Winnebago Indians. Okay. I don't know how they became associated with motor homes, but <laughs> it's it's a fascinating thing. I always wondered where the term came from. Apparently, it's an Indian tribe. The Winnebago. Uh, and I don't know how that, uh, you know, association with motor homes was made. But it is kind of a perfect association because uh, we could garner a lot from the stories of the Winnebago. And uh, it's a perfect vehicle for this concept of the hero's journey. Pun absolutely intended. Uh, so let's continue reading here. Dr. Radin noted four distinct cycles in the evolution of the hero myth. He named them the trickster cycle, the hare cycle, the red horn cycle, and the twin cycle. Going to pause for a second there, folks. So remember that. Remember we discussed earlier the four different phases of the hero's journey, right? We were talking about the uh, youth, the idea of youth, uh, young adulthood, older adulthood, what we would call maturity, and then that phase where we're uh, get we're older and we're preparing for death. Remember those. Those four concepts correlate to this. To this idea that's being put forth here by Dr. Radin in his writing. So he called them the trickster cycle, the hare cycle, H-A-R-E, the red horn cycle, and the twin cycle. He correctly perceived the psychology of this evolution when he said, quote, it represents our efforts to deal with the problem of growing up aided by the illusion of an eternal fiction, end quote. The trickster cycle corresponds to the earliest and least developed period of life. Trickster is a figure whose physical appetites dominate his behavior. He has the mentality of an infant. Lacking any purpose beyond the gratification of his primary needs, he is cruel, cynical, and unfeeling. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. Keep this in mind. So this is the trickster. Trickster cycle, right? the archetype of the trickster. It represents the animal nature in humans, uh, that nature in which they just want to satisfy their physical needs, right? Where they just have these, these physical desires that they need to fulfill without much thought about their actions. They're not concerned with, you know, moral types of arguments or things like that. Let's continue on here. Our stories of Br'er Rabbit or Reynard the Fox preserve the essentials of the trickster myth. This figure, which at the outset assumes the form of an animal, passes from one mischievous exploit to another. But as he does, or sorry, but as he does so, a change comes over him. At the end of his rogue's progress, he is beginning to take on the physical likeness of a grown man. The next figure 
is hair. He also, like Trickster, whose animal traits are represented among some American Indians by a coyote, first appears in animal form. He has not yet attained mature human stature, but all the same he appears as the founder of human culture, the Transformer. The Winnebago believe that in giving them their famous medicine rite, he became their savior as well as their culture hero. This myth was so powerful, Dr. Raiden tells us, that the members of the peyote rite were reluctant to give up hair when Christianity began to penetrate the tribe. He became merged with the figure of Christ, and some of them argued that they had no need of Christ since they already had hair. This archetypal figure represents a distinct advance on Trickster. One can see that he is becoming a socialized being, correcting the instinctual and infantile urges found in the Trickster cycle. And I'm going to pause there, folks. This is a coming-of-age story, right? This is, this is a portion of the hero's journey. Now, once again, I'll draw back to the example of Star Wars. When we first meet Luke Skywalker, he's a young man just working on his uncle's moisture farm, just doing, you know, basic stuff. Uh, but he's of that coming-of-age type process here that happens very quickly as the story unfolds. This is when he meets up with Ben Kenobi and uh, wanders off with Ben and comes back to find his, his uncle and aunt uh, murdered by the Empire. So then he goes off on this whirlwind adventure and learns from Ben Kenobi, Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, who is the mentor in this case. And this is his coming-of-age story. So this is the same kind of thing. So this is represented by the hair archetype here, according to the Winnebago tradition. So the trickster is young and infantile, but Luke Skywalker was of this, this phase of the hero's journey, right? Let's continue on, and we'll see where else this leads. Red Horn, the third of the series of hero figures, is an ambiguous person, said to be the youngest of ten brothers. He meets the requirements of an archetypal hero by passing such tests as winning a race and by proving himself in battle. His superhuman power is shown by his ability to defeat giants by guile in a game of dice or by strength in a wrestling match. He has a powerful companion in the form of a thunderbird called Storms as He Walks, whose strength compensates for whatever weakness Redhorn may display. With Redhorn, we have reached the world of man. Through an archaic world in which the aid of superhuman powers or tutelary gods is needed to ensure man's victory over the evil forces that beset him. Toward the end of the story of the hero god or sorry, toward the end of the story, the hero god departs, leaving Redhorn and his sons on earth. The danger to man's happiness and security now comes from man himself. This basic theme, which is repeated in the last cycle, that of the twins, raises, in effect, the vital question, how long can human beings be successful without falling victims to their own pride, or in mythological terms, to the jealousy of the gods? And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. This is a hugely important point. So in the ancient mythologies, when they're talking here about the jealousy of the gods... Uh, when you, you see uh, 
uh, in ancient mythologies, Greek mythology in particular, where one of the gods becomes jealous and smites the human or does something awful to the human hero or, or protagonist here. Uh, what does that mean? What is that really representing? Well, it represents man's hubris, folks. See, man, after he succeeds through these various transformations, as it's also said here, these different uh, processes, these, these different procession through different ages in himself, from youth to young man to mature man to old man, as he goes through this process, if he's very successful and he doesn't have too much uh, opposition to himself and he becomes very successful, he develops pride. And the same thing can be said in the Bible. It talks about the sin of pride. This was the sin that got Lucifer cast out of heaven. Right? The sin of pride. So when man becomes too prideful, well, this is correlated in mythological terms as the jealousy or revenge of the gods upon that, that person. So see, this is all about the internal struggle in each and every one of us. Right? That's essentially what it is on an archetypal level. We all have these internal battles that we take on and this is the kind of thing that we're dealing with right and we could all fall victim to this so there comes a point where if you become successful in life sometimes you become prideful and arrogant and uh, sometimes that comes back to bite you that's the uh, the whole moral of the story here right that's what they're talking about when like say the gods smite the mortal uh, you know protagonist in the story that, that's what's going on. That's what it's about. It's about their pride uh, became too much for them, and uh, they became arrogant, then, and they needed to be humbled. And that's often what happens. Even in the Bible, right, in the biblical story, a man, in his arrogance, uh, if you go back to the story of the Tower of Babel, they built this tower to the heavens because they wanted to rival God. Nimrod wanted to climb the, the tower and murder God and take his place. This was the height of hubris, of human pride. They prided themselves. They became prolific builders, right? They were able to build these massive cities and, you know, these, these big structures, and they thought there was nothing they couldn't do. They thought that they had achieved this same kind of parody or, or level with God the Creator and, and sought to usurp him and thought they could do so. And the same thing happened, right? We saw what happened with the story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, it's the same kind of a thing that goes on with all of us. We fight this pride, right? Sometimes we get a little too confident in ourselves with things or we get a little too comfortable and Pride goes before a fall, and a haughty spirit before destruction. That's what the Bible teaches us. Uh, so these are universal truths, right? So we need to be mindful of that. And a lot of these myths, mythological stories, are put in place to keep us in that mindset, to know, hey, don't forget to be humble today, because you weren't always on the top of your game, right? There was a time that you were a struggling young man or woman, just trying to make it in the world and we're just scrapping around, didn't know quite what to do or how to get there. Uh, so don't get overconfident here. Don't get arrogant. Don't get to that point where your own hubris is your destruction. 
That's the moral of the story. But let's continue reading. Though the twins are said to be the sons of the sun, that's S-O-N-S, sons of the sun, S-U-N, with a capital S, they are essentially human and together constitute a single person. Originally united in the mother's womb, they were forced apart at birth. Yet they belong together, and it is necessary, though exceedingly difficult, to reunite them. In these two children, we see the two sides of man's nature. One of them, flesh, is acquiescent, mild, and without initiative. The other, stump, is dynamic and rebellious. In some of the stories of the twin heroes, these attitudes are refined to the point where one figure represents the introvert, well, whose main strength lies in his powers of reflection, and the other is an extrovert, a man of action who can accomplish great deeds. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. And this story of the Winnebago correlates to ideas like Gemini, uh, to many of these different same things. The concept of the etheric double, or the, uh, the human double in a person, where we have these two natures that are back and forth. Uh, the idea of the conscience, right? And uh, the id in the ego and the superego. All these ideas all correlate together. Uh, so that's, that's kind of what's represented here. But let's continue reading here. For a long time, these two heroes are invincible. Whether they are present as two separate figures or as two in one, they carry all before them. Yet, like the warrior gods of Navajo Indian mythology, they eventually sicken from the abuse of their own power. There are no monsters left in heaven or on earth for them to overcome, and their con consequent wild behavior brings retribution in its train. The Winnebago say that nothing in the end was safe from them, not even the supports on which the world rests. When the twins killed one of the four animals that upheld the earth, they had overstepped all limits, and the time had come to put a stop to their career. The punishment they deserved was death. I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. Once again, there's the moral of the story. Their hubris, right? Their arrogance, the fact that uh, they had succeeded so much, it made them prideful, and their pride allowed them to continue in this train of thought, whereas, okay, they overcame all of their obstacles that they had to in order to succeed and have a happy life. But they weren't content there. See, they had achieved all of their goals. They had done everything they needed to do. So they were looking for more. They wanted more. This is man striving to be God, right? And it's it's not going to work out. That's the moral of the story. So they attacked the foundations of the world. And therefore they suffered death. The punishment of death for that. So there's a story uh, in there for you too to consider but let's read on thus in both the red horn cycle and that of the twins we see the theme of sacrifice or death of the hero as a necessary cure for hubris the pride that has overreached itself in the primitive sources whose level of culture corresponds to the red horn cycle it appears that this danger may have been forestalled by the institution of propitiatory human sacrifice a theme that has immense symbolic importance and recurs continually in human history 
The Winnebago, like the Iroquois and a few Algonquin tribes, probably ate human flesh as a totemic ritual that could tame their individualistic and destructive impulses. In the examples of the hero's betrayal or defeat that occur in European mythology, the theme of ritual sacrifice is more specifically employed as a punishment for hubris. But the Winnebago, like the Navajo, do not go so far. Though the twins erred, and though they, the punishment should have been death, they themselves became so frightened by their irresponsible power that they consented to live in a state of permanent rest. The conflicting sides of human nature were again in equilibrium. I have given this description of the four types of hero at some, t some length because it provides a clear demonstration of the pattern that occurs both in the historic myths and in the hero dreams of contemporary man. With this in mind, we can examine the following dream of a middle-aged patient. The interpretation of this dream shows how the analytical psychologist can, from his knowledge of mythology, help his patient find an answer to what might otherwise seem an insoluble riddle. This man dreamed he was at a theater, in the role of an important spectator whose opinion is respected. There was an act in which a white monkey was standing on a pedestal with men around him. In recounting his dream, the man said, quote, My guide explains the theme to me. It is the ordeal of a young sailor who is exposed both to the wind and to being beaten up. I begin to object that this white monkey is not a sailor at all, but just at that moment a young man in black stands up, and I think that he must be the true hero. But another handsome young man strides toward an altar and stretches himself out on it. They are making marks on his bare chest as a preparation to offering him as a human sacrifice. Then I find myself on a platform with several other people. We could get down by a small ladder, but I hesitate to do so because there are two young toughs standing by and I think that they will stop us. But when a woman in the group uses the ladder unmolested, I see that it is safe and all of us follow the woman down. End quote. There, so this is the dream described by the patient to the doctor here. And uh, Young goes on to explain here how you could use mythology and archetypes to help examine the meanings, the hidden meanings of these dreams. Let's continue reading here. Now, a dream of this kind cannot be quickly or simply interpreted. We have to unravel it carefully in order to show both its relation to the dreamer's own life and its wider symbolic implications. The patient who produced it was a man who had achieved maturity in a physical sense. He was successful in his career, and he had apparently done pretty well as a husband and father. Yet, psychologically, he was still immature and had not completed his youthful phase of development. It was this psychic immaturity that expressed itself in his dreams as different aspects of the hero myth. These images still exerted a strong attraction for his imagination, even though they had long since exhausted any of their meaning in terms of the reality of his everyday life. Thus, in a dream, we see a series of figures theatrically presented as various aspects of a figure that the dreamer keeps expecting will turn out to be the true hero. The first is a white monkey, the second a sailor, the third a young man in black, and the last a handsome young man. In the early part of the performance, which is supposed to represent the sailor's ordeal, the dreamer sees only the white monkey. 
The man in black suddenly appears and as suddenly disappears. He is a new figure who first contrasts with the white monkey and is then for a moment confused with the hero proper. Such confusion in dreams is not unusual. The dreamer is not usually presented with clear images by the unconscious. He has to puzzle out a meaning from a succession of contrasts and paradoxes. Significantly, these figures appear in the course of a theatrical performance, and this context seems to be a direct reference by the dreamer to his own treatment by analysis. The guide he mentions is presumably his analyst. Yet, he does not see himself as a patient who is being treated by a doctor, but as an important spectator whose opinion is respected. This is the vantage point from which he sees certain figures whom he associates with the experience of growing up. The white monkey, for instance, reminds him of the playful and somewhat lawless behavior of boys between the ages of 7 and 12. The sailor suggests the adventurousness of early adolescence together with the consequent punishment by beating for irresponsible pranks. The dreamer could offer no association to the young man in black, but in the handsome young man about to be sacrificed he saw a reminder of the self-sacrificing idealism of late adolescence. At this stage, it is possible to put together the historical material, or archetypal hero images, and the data from the dreamer's personal experience in order to see how they corroborate, contradict, or qualify each other. The first conclusion is that the white monkey seems to represent trickster, or at least those traits of personality that the Winnebago attribute to trickster. But to me, the monkey also stands for something that the dreamer has not personally and adequately experienced for himself. He, in fact, says that in the dream, he was a spectator. I found out that as a boy, he had been excessively attached to his parents and that he was naturally introspective. For these reasons, he had never fully developed the boisterous qualities natural to late childhood nor had he joined in the games of his schoolfellows. He had not, as the saying goes, got up to the monkey tricks or practiced monkey shines. The saying provides the clue here. The monkey in the dream is, in fact, a symbolic form of the trickster figure. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. The monkey is a trickster figure. Remember that when you see monkeys used as symbols somewhere. This is the trickster archetype. This is equated to childhood, to immaturity, to uh, the idea of limiting the human mind to a childlike state, right? So that's the whole purpose of the monkey as a symbol. And how much monkey business do we see going on in the world today? Well, it's the trickster up to their old tricks again. That's what the archetype represents. So when you see the monkey out there, know that that's what this is. Okay? Uh, so let's continue reading, though. But why should Trickster appear as a monkey? And why should it be white? As I have already pointed out, the Winnebago myth tells us that toward the end of the cycle, Trickster begins to emerge in the physical likeness of a man. And here, in the dream, is a monkey, so close to a human being that it is a laughable and not too dangerous caricature of a man. The dreamer himself could offer no personal association that could explain why the monkey was white. But from our knowledge of primitive symbolism, we can conjecture that whiteness lends a special quality of 
godlikeness to this otherwise banal figure. The albino is regarded as sacred in many primitive communities. This fits in quite well with the trickster's semi-divine or semi-magical powers. Thus, it seems, the white monkey symbolizes for the dreamer the positive quality of childhood playfulness, which he had insufficiently accepted at the time and which he now feels called upon to exalt. As the dream tells us, he places it on a pedestal where it becomes something more than a lost childhood experience. It is, for the adult man, a symbol of creative experimentalism. Next, we come to the conclusion about the monkey. Is it a monkey, or is it a sailor who has put, has to put up with beatings? The dreamer's own associations pointed to, to the meaning of this transformation, but in any case, the next stage in human development is one in which the irresponsibility of childhood gives way to a period of socialization, and that involves submission to painful discipline. One could say, therefore, that the sailor is an advanced form of trickster who is being changed into a socially responsible person by means of an initiation ordeal, drawing on the human or sorry, drawing on the history of symbolism, we can assume that the wind represents the natural elements in this process, and the beatings are those that are humanly induced. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So keep this in mind. This is an initiation ordeal. Why do you think these secret society groups are so hung up on initiation or initiatory processes? It's the same thing. It's about growth, right? And it's a natural progression for people. You don't have to partake in a... Uh, an initiation ritual within a secret society in order to grow spiritually. It's symbolic, but this is why they put emphasis on this, because it's an important process that we all must go through. But uh, anyway, let's read on here. At this point, then, we have a reference to the process that the Winnebago describe in the hair cycle, where the culture hero is a weak yet struggling figure, ready to sacrifice childishness for the sake of further development. Once again, in this phase of the dream, the patient is acknowledging his failure to experience to the full an important aspect of childhood and early adolescence. He missed out on the playfulness of the child, and also on the rather more advanced pranks of the younger teenager, and he is seeking ways in which these lost experiences and personal qualities can be rehabilitated. Next comes a curious change in the dream. The young man in black appears, and for a moment, the dreamer feels that this is the true hero. That is all we are told about the man in black, yet this fleeting glimpse introduces a theme of profound importance, a theme that occurs frequently in dreams. Pay close attention, folks. This is the concept of the shadow, which plays such a vital role in analytical psychology. Dr. Young has pointed out that the shadow cast by the conscious mind of the individual contains the hidden, repressed, and unfavorable or nefarious aspects of the personality. But this darkness is not just the simple converse of the conscious ego. Just as the ego contains unfavorable and destructive attitudes, so the shadow has good qualities, normal instincts, and creative impulses. Ego and shadow, indeed, although separate, are inextricably linked together in much the same way that thought and feeling are related to each other.
The ego, nevertheless, is in conflict with the shadow in what Dr. Young once called the battle for deliverance. In the struggle of primitive man to achieve consciousness, this conflict is expressed by the contest between the archetypal hero and the cosmic powers of evil personified by dragons and other monsters. In the developing consciousness of the individual, the hero figure is the symbolic means by which the emerging ego overcomes the inertia of the unconscious mind and liberates the mature man from a regressive longing to return to the blissful state of infancy in a world dominated by his mother. Usually, in mythology, the hero wins his battle against the monster. I shall say more about this in a moment. But there are other hero myths in which the hero gives in to a monster. A familiar type is that of Jonah and the whale, in which the hero is swallowed by a sea monster that carries him at night, or carries him on a night sea journey from west to east, thus symbolizing the supposed transit of the sun from sunset to dawn. The hero goes into darkness, which represents a kind of death. I have encountered this theme in dreams presented in my own clinical experience. The battle between the hero and the dragon is the more active form of this myth, and it shows more clearly the archetypal theme of the ego's triumph over regressive trends. For most people, the dark or negative side of the personality remains unconscious. The hero, on the contrary, must realize that the shadow exists and that he can draw strength from it. He must come to terms with its destructive powers if he is to become sufficiently terrible to overcome the dragon, i.e. before the ego can triumph. It must master and assimilate the shadow. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. Ever heard of anybody talking about shadow work? Hmm? This is exactly what they're talking about, right? And this represents some older alchemical type ideas as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, they've been adapted into modern-day psychology. And Jung, as I said earlier, he was an alchemist. He practiced uh, some of the old alchemical teachings. He understood some of these things very well. This is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun, folks. Our modern forms of psychology have been adapted from older sciences, older natural sciences. And some of them have been perverted from those older natural sciences. Uh, but many of these... Uh, concepts are far older than the modern era, right? These are things that have been understood by mankind, and specifically mankind within the different secret society groups or the, uh, you know, the, the different uh, mystery schools that have been brought forward through the ages. This is some of the things that they teach. They talk about this stuff. Shadow work, about uh, that, uh, as we said, the etheric double or the human double that resides with ourselves, that represents... Uh, the same things as the concepts that uh, Freud brought forward with the id, the ego, and the superego. So this would be like the id and the, the superego in contest with one another. The id being what they would call the shadow archetype, and the superego being the hero archetype. See, and that, that all fights within us. And then the greater ego, the ego itself, would be what we represent on a conscious level as. So... The, these same ideas, they're very old, right? It's its not something that uh, was only born into modern society in like the late 1800s, early 1900s, like we're taught historically, right? And the science of psychology, far older, 
far older, just called different things. But uh, let's continue reading here. One can see this theme, incidentally, in a well-known literary hero figure, Goth's character of Faust. In accepting the wager of Mephistopheles, Faust put himself in the power of a shadow figure that Goth describes as part of that power which willing evil finds the good. Like the man whose dream I have been discussing, Faust had failed to live out to the full an important part of his early life. He was, accordingly, an unreal or incomplete person who lost himself in a fruitless quest for metaphysical goals that failed to materialize. He was still unwilling to accept life's challenge to live both the good and the bad. It is to this aspect of the unconscious that the young man in black in my patient's dream seems to refer. Such a reminder of the shadow side of his personality, of its powerful potential, and its role in preparing the hero for the struggles of life is an essential transition from the earlier parts of the dream to the theme of the sacrificial hero, the handsome young man who places himself on an altar. This figure represents the form of heroism that is commonly associated to the ego-building process of late adolescence. A man expresses the ideal principles of his life at this time, sensing their power both to transform himself and to change his relations with others. He is, so to speak, in the bloom of youth, attractive, full of energy and idealism. Why, then, does he willingly offer himself as a human sacrifice? The reason, presumably, is the same as that which made the twins of the Winnebago myth give up their power on pain of destruction. The idealism of youth, which drives one so hard, is bound to lead to overconfidence. The human ego can be exalted to experience godlike attributes, but only at the cost of overreaching itself and falling to disaster. This is the meaning of the story of Icarus, the young man who is carried up to heaven on his fragile, humanly contrived wings, but who flies too close to the sun and plunges to his doom. All the same, the youthful ego must always run this risk, for if a young man does not strive for a higher goal than he can safely reach, he cannot surmount the obstacles between adolescence and maturity. So far, I have been talking about the conclusions that, at the level of his personal associations my patient could draw from his own dream, yet there is an archetypal level of the dream, the mystery of the proffered human sacrifice. It is precisely because it is a mystery that is expressed in a ritual act that, in its symbolism, carries us a long way back into man's history. Here, as the man lies stretched out on an altar, we see a reference to an act even more primitive than those performed on the altar stone in the temple at Stonehenge. There, as on so many primitive altars, we can imagine a yearly solstice rite combined with the death and rebirth of a mythological hero. The ritual has a sorrow about it that is also a kind of joy, an inward acknowledgement that death also leads to new life. Whether it is expressed in the prose epic of the Winnebago Indians, in a lament for the death of Balder in the North Edas, in Walt Whitman's poems for mourning for Abraham Lincoln, or in the dream ritual whereby a man returns to his youthful hopes and fears, it is the same theme the drama of new birth through death. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. The death and rebirth cycle. Right? 
we see this strewn throughout all of mythology and it's very archetypal in its use the phoenix is a perfect symbol of this representation of it uh, death and rebirth out of the ashes is born something new right so this is the same thing and this is something that uh, is entrenched in the human psyche the idea that uh, death and rebirth are a related thing it's a cyclical nature right and it's it's something that uh, we all have an instinctual kind of feeling about we, we understand that on some level that uh, when we die there's something more right there's something beyond that we don't just cease to exist at that point now maybe uh you know in the modern era here modern man in his secular ways uh may actually try to push that idea that uh, when we die that's it we cease to exist at that point but i think inherently we all know we all know there's something more something beyond right and this would be rebirth in whichever way that uh, we we can accept whether it's a, a resurrection or whether it's actually through the process of reincarnation or however it's viewed all the cultures in antiquity and many cultures even today acknowledge some type of a, a factor of life after death or life beyond death except for those uh you know those few atheistic type uh secularists out there they might you know actually absolutely believe in their hearts and minds that uh, once once we have you know fallen to death that's it we cease to exist uh, but by and large i think there's probably even doubts in their minds about it because well it's human nature we, we we know we strive for something more something beyond this physical realm we live in and that's part of human nature but let's continue reading on and we're almost finished here the end of the dream brings out a curious epilogue in which the dreamer at last becomes involved in the action of the dream he and others are on a platform from which they have to descend he does not trust the latter because of the possible interference of hoodlums but a woman encourages him to believe he can go down safely and this is accomplished since i found out from his associations that the whole performance he witnessed was part of his analysis a process of interchange that he was experiencing he was presumably thinking of the difficulty of getting back to everyday reality again his fear of the toughs as he calls them suggests his fear of the trickster archetype may appear in a collective form the saving elements in the dream are the man-made ladder which here is probably a symbol of the rational mind and the presence of the woman who encourages the dreamer to use it her appearance in the final sequence of the dream points to a psychic need to include a feminine principle as a complement to all this excessively masculine activity it should be should not be assumed from what i have said or from the fact that i have chosen to use the winnebago myth to illuminate this particular dream that one must seek for complete and wholly mechanical parallels between a dream and the materials one can find in the history of mythology each dream is individual to the dreamer 
and the precise form it takes is determined by his own situation. What I have sought to show is the manner in which the unconscious draws on this archetypal material and modifies its patterns to the dreamer's needs. Thus, in this particular dream, one must not look for a direct reference to what the Winnebago describes in the Red Horn or Twin Cycles. The reference is rather to the essence of those two themes, to the sacrificial element in them. As a general rule, it can be said that the need for hero symbols arises when the ego needs strengthening. When, that is to say, the conscious mind needs assistance in some task that it cannot accomplish unaided or without drawing on the sources of strength that lie in the unconscious mind. In the dream I have been discussing, for instance, there was no reference to one of the more important aspects of the myth of the typical hero, his capacity to save or protect beautiful women from terrible danger. The damsel in distress was a favorite myth of medieval Europe. This is one way in which myths or dreams refer to the anima, the feminine element of the male psyche, that Goethe called the eternal feminine. The nature and function of this female element will be discussed later in this book by Dr. von Franz, but its relation to the hero figure can be illustrated here by a dream produced by another patient, also a man of mature years, and we're not going to go into that dream, folks. I don't think that's necessary at this point. You get the idea how many mythological elements can actually relate to our dreams and how the importance of some of these elements aligns very much so with the modern era uh, and you know how we could utilize the concepts of mythology to understand ourselves better. So we looked at the archetype of the hero and the shadow here tonight. So that's, that's the whole crux of the matter. We all have these inherent uh, psychological needs that we need to meet in life. And some of us are a little further down the path than others, right? Our, our maturity levels are at different places based upon this, or as they would call it, the evolutionary steps through the different uh, uh, processes of life, the different cycles of life where we go through these, these different phases, where uh, we have the youthful phase, the mature adult phase, we have you know all these processes we go through through aging, and have these various types of experiences through that. And a lot of this is represented in the, the, the myth of the hero, right? The classical archetype of the hero. And you could look at all different cultures and see all different hero myths. And it also has to incorporate the idea of the shadow within the hero myth, where we need to do this shadow work, so to say, where we can incorporate our darker half, where we could draw upon strength from that with our, uh, our lighter half. Uh, so many of these ideas transcend time and culture. And I think Jung described them very well, and he chose uh, the story of the Winnebago Indians there with the different, uh, the different concepts of the different phases in the hero's journey story, in the story of the hero, different types or archetypes of the hero, and different sub-archetypes that fall within that category. The trickster, right? He, he described them as the trickster, uh, Redhorn, the twins, and 
the other one's escaping me at the moment. Uh, I was just reading this too, but uh, you, you could see here uh, that we they, we go through these phases, right? So all the different hero aspects of this have different phases to them. And even the trickster archetype, although it usually has a negative connotation, this could be viewed from a positive point of view too. And that's the whole point here. All of these uh, these different ideas have positive and negative connotations to them. And it's all about how we process them within ourselves. That's why even like the idea of the shadow, why we it's important for us to do that that uh, what they call shadow work where we we look at our our darker half right we look at uh, our selfish kind of ideals and you know these different things that we see as negative negative influences on us but we could use those to strengthen ourselves and make ourselves better it's all about how you process it within yourself right that's what the inherent idea is here it's how we deal with things it's how we change our attitudes and adapt on a sociological level uh, through these different types of uh, evolutionary states, so to say, in our development. Uh, from the youth, from the infancy idea to the young adult, you know, the adolescent, the young adult, the mature adult, and then on towards, uh, you know, our older years. And we go through these different processes in life. We all have these different experiences, and we're all at different places. And sometimes, psychologically, you're not matched up with where you are physically. And a lot of this is because of the contrivance of social engineering sciences that are being used to manipulate the public right now. It's a process in which they call it arrested development, right? And this is what's purposely being uh, done to society. We're targeted with entertainment choices and with uh, uh, different things on the level of an adolescent because they want us in that adolescent mind state because we're easier to control then and we need a guide then. See, we can't be uh, independent if we need to have guidance. And this is what, uh, you know, quote-unquote governments or governance organizations thrive upon. They want people that can't take care of themselves, right? They're not mature enough. They haven't reached that point of maturity. So they use these different social influences to create this state of arrested development in society at large. And this is something that's a very real phenomenon that's been going on. For some time and it's it's demonstrable uh, look at the you know the way we're educated in the school system it's all about maintaining people at this type of an emotional level right and that's not to say that uh, they don't maybe progress intellectually or logically uh, they can do that they can grow in those ways but they want to keep people's base emotions emotional states at this kind of childish level because that makes them very controllable makes them very needy see that's why there's an assault on the human psyche right now that's why mental illness is at an all-time high they're attacking the very psyches of people trying to keep them in this arrested development state so that they're more easily controllable and manipulated
They See, they have this need. They can't take care of themselves. So they need Big Brother to take care of them, tell them what to do, because they can't uh, do that on their own. They haven't acquired this level of maturity in the process. Uh, that's been part of what's been going on with the indoctrination of the youth through many generations now. And th that's where it's culminated at. So that's what we're looking at. I mean, these are social engineering sciences that are being leveraged against us. And people like Jung understood what a lot of these different uh, mythological archetypes and stuff, the type of power that they had on the human psyche. And a lot of this has been lost to the vast majority of the public today and of those in the mainstream science fields, okay? With the exception of a few social controllers at the top of the structure, they very much understand the power of mythology and archetype, and they leverage that against us to keep us in that childish state, the trickster. That's why the trickster archetype is leveraged on so much, because it keeps us in that childish mindset, that pattern, that emotional state. See? It's all been leveraged in very nefarious types of ways by the power structure here. And it's an abuse of some of these older alchemical ideas. That's what's been going on. So it's important to recognize these things. And I think, uh, you know, it's, it's important to talk about them. And uh, I'm still exploring how dreams interact with this. Uh, the idea of mythological archetype cropping up in dreams is a fascinating one. But it's, it's a true one. And although it may look different in the dream than what we would consider like a classic Greek archetype or something like that, it's still the same basic concept behind it. We understand it intrinsically, right? It's inherent. It's inherent. It's implied. And uh, I find that whole thing fascinating. So it's an important concept that we need to understand. And it does have a very direct influence upon us. So anyway... That's the whole premise here. So I, I hope uh, that exploring the hero and the shadow archetype here uh, was helpful or, uh, you know, has some kind of value for people out there because I think these are important ideas that always deserve another look. Uh, so I can never state enough. Don't underestimate the power of mythology. It's very important. And it's important to understand it in the modern era because there are people in positions of power out there that are leveraging these ideas against you. So if you understand them, you can fight back in a sense. Learn more about mythology, the different archetypes. See how they're being used against you. Start to analyze this stuff for yourself. Look on the television at the stories they're throwing you and recognize the myth representation that's there. Anyway, folks, that's all I got for tonight, so we'll catch you next time. Thank you for tuning in. Have a good night now.
Introducing the new home for free speech, Free World FM, the alternative to the alternative. Keep on talking in the free world. That's freeworld.fm. Coming soon.